Well, hello, and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School from Maui, Hawaii. And uh, this is uh, the first week of Daylight Savings Time. So for those of you listening live, thanks for being here today, and congratulations on making your transition. Of course, these programs are archived forevermore and available to you at theagelesswisdom.com. Remember the T-H-E, the W's dot, theagelesswisdom.com. Just click on homepage to go inside, and then click on web teleconference. I may change that to webinar, so if in the future you see webinar instead of web teleconference, uh, that's where you'll find the archive of all of these programs and a little tool you can use to forward them to your friends. Choose appropriate programs, the right program for somebody that you know, a friend or family member, who's looking for this particular kind of information. Spiritual evolution is our concept today, and we'll do our best to embrace the idea of spiritual evolution within religion, try and bring religion into the field, um, and see if we can talk about some of the similarities as well as some of the differences um, in the two, in organized religion, especially the Western religions of, of uh, Catholicism, Christianity, Judaism, and um, Islam, and uh, a little bit about uh, Eastern philosophy, and, and how it, it all relates to this idea of spiritual evolution. Okay, and And the place I want to begin is to offer you a wonderful word, uh, that's an alternative to spiritual evolution, spiritual unfoldment. Spiritual evolution is a favorite term of mine. I like it because it sort of challenges people right away who think that there's only two ways to believe in anything, this way or that way, the right way or the wrong way, creationism versus evolution. Well, the idea that uh, the creator created evolution seems to escape the binary thinker, the idea that there may be a middle and that, you know, wait a minute, this may be, maybe both things are true here. Maybe what's been created is an opportunity to consciously and deliberately initiate our spiritual growth and aspiration to what we think of as a creative force, um, a supreme uh, in philosophy, we would we would not say uh, God, but the absolute or the Godhead, which in philosophy stands even above the Father aspect, the ultimate unknowable, unknowable uh, source of all things, the the divine source, but the physical source as well, and that it unfolds, it develops, it grows through us, and that we can. How would a religious person say it? Serve God by growing ourselves, not trying to get to some place and then hold on, but look at adversity and the challenges of life as an opportunity to always learn more, to do better, um, and to be the kind of person that you want to be, not only for your benefit, but for the benefit of everybody around you and the world. You know, in politics, we have this funny thing happening right now where 
the right wing talks about the values of self-reliance as if the left is not interested in self-reliance. The left only wants a welfare state. Um, and it's not true. You know, most Americans want both. They they value self-reliance and independence, but they also value a sense of community and caring for each other. So the catastrophe in in New Orleans a couple of years ago, Katrina, where the, you know, the government, this started with Ronald Reagan saying government is not the solution. Government is the problem. And so we're going to take it apart little by little and bit by bit and you're all on your own. Gang, it's never an either or. Okay? I hate to, to you know, use words like always and never. And I do it advisingly and carefully, but well, watch out for that either-or stuff. It happens when we're stressed and anxious and nervous, and the idea of you're either with me or against me, you're either right or you're wrong, uh, you know, shoot first, ask questions later. Kill them all and let God sort them out. Uh, that's an old mentality. We have to let that go and begin to look at the, the way in which and can replace or in your life and in the world. We do need to be more self-reliant, no question about it. And we can be more harmonious in our caring for our neighbor. Um, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. The question is, how far down the block does that go? Is your neighbor the guy just next door, two doors down, all the way to the end of the street? Or is your neighbor only somebody who lives in your city or your nation or is your neighbor everybody on this planet and I'd like to think the latter you know the bigger more inclusive view you can have of of your sense of community what does the word mean come unity with unity all right and so it's not an either or and this is central to the whole idea of spiritual evolution it's not you evolving instead of society in the world or the world evolving and it doesn't really matter to what extent you come along it's like everybody benefits and we have to work together but we also have to be it seems as people who want to initiate our own spiritual growth our own personal and spiritual development we also have to be more self-reliant and more independent and both things are true <laughs> one of the one of the best things you can do for the world or that any of us can do for the world is to help us get past or thinking either or thinking and be a little more harmonious and a little more unitive come unity and you know put the and where the or used to be we can do this and that we can be self-reliant and help our neighbor and that's a big step forward. So spiritual evolution, it's not creationism or evolution, right? Certainly Darwin's theories have evolved as well. Our understanding of natural selection has evolved. But the idea that you have to be anti-science in order to love spiritual growth uh, is a, a false choice, a, a false dichotomy that's been held out. You get to love science and still 
be passionate in your aspiration to personal development and to that longing in our hearts to be better. Again, this isn't really coming from the head so much as identifying within you the the natural aspiration that we all have to be better people. Not because we're afraid of burning in hell, not because we're afraid of going to jail, but because we've got codes built in. We, we are ethical people by nature. We have a conscience. <laughs> we, we did a class a few weeks ago on the wisdom of Jiminy Cricket and how to let your conscience be your guide. Uh, except for a very small percentage of people, sociopaths and psychopaths, who really have no conscience, it's like a defect, uh, the vast majority of people have one, it's just a lot of folks have buried it. And this is uh, the temptation and the sinning that religious people talk about. But beyond labeling yourself as bad or corrupt or a fallen sinner, How about just accepting who you are, where you are, with an aspiration to every day in every way be a little bit better. Cut yourself some slack and learn from your mistakes. You know, there's a great mystic in the, uh, I believe, the 13th century, a Catholic mystic named Eckhart, Meister Johannes Eckhart. He was a Jesuit priest, and um, he was charged with heresy by the Inquisition, as many priests of the day were. The Inquisition was not just for the non-Catholic or the non-Christian. Um, there were many, you know, good priests and nuns that were caught up in the Inquisition as the church tried to hold on to its power and, and keep people uh, locked in their medieval thinking. No reading, um, none of that. And Eckhart said... Uh, one, one of the 75 counts of heresy that this Jesuit priest was brought up on was the idea that you should never regret having committed a sin. You should never regret having sinned. Um, fortunately, um, old Meister Eckhart died before they had a chance to waterboard him or stretch him on the rack or burn him on the stake. Um, Sweet revenge. He just died of old age before they could do any of that. But it demonstrates a rigid concept that exists even today, the idea that sinning is bad and to not sin is good, and there's nothing in the middle. There's no room or little room um, for the idea of growth. Um, outside of the very rigid ideas of redemption and salvation and the rules that the church has. The idea that a sin simply means to miss the mark. Literally, that's what the word is rooted in, to, to mess up, to screw up, to make a mistake. That's what Meister Eckhart was saying, that most people aren't deliberately bad. They they mess up. They try to be good, but they're tempted, you know, they wanted to have one glass of wine, they ended up drinking the whole bottle and crashing the car. And, Sorry, I, <laughs> yeah, I'll try to learn next time. And, you know, to label us as bad is to block our spiritual growth and our spiritual evolution. So, again, I don't want to make anybody wrong. I don't even want to make the church wrong. I just want to loosen things up a little bit 
and talk about the ancient, even the, you know, pre-Christian, B.C. philosophies, the ancient Greeks, for example, and uh, this idea of spiritual evolution and unfoldment as it transcends religion, okay? And we look at this idea of honoring our conscience and the built-in sense that we have of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what may be right for you, but sorry, man, I can't do that. That may you may be able to justify that, but I, you know, or whatever. It's got to be personal. It's got to be personal. You can look outside to a church or a philosopher, a philosophy. Uh, you could be a joiner or a non-joiner. You could belong or refuse to belong. You can find your inspiration in a variety of places, but at the end of the day, it's you and your conscience. And to be good enough is not enough. We've got to grow and unfold spiritually. And, and that's an alternative to redemption or salvation that a lot of people don't know about. So I thought I'd talk about that a little bit today. I'd like to really go back to the concept of the uh, chain of being, the great chain of being, as has been described again by the ancient Greeks, by Plato and Aristotle, and uh, I think to some extent Socrates also talked about the great Mandela, the chain or the cycle, the wheel of life, as it is sometimes called. It's a beautiful concept. It is Traces of it are found in all religions, but mostly it is found in the spiritual philosophies that stand behind um, uh, religion and the idea is that there is a spiritual involution that precedes the spiritual evolution it's like invocation and evocation if you ever played with those words uh, to invoke for example as opposed to then evoking well involution and evolution are similar spiritual involution we could think of as in the simplest sense, incarnation, the idea of spirit coming into form. This is um, energy coming into matter. You can understand why the Egyptians may have worshipped the sun, whether literally or as allegory. It is the sun, really, and the other stars, billions and billions and billions of stars in our universe that bring energy into material existence all right remember it's einstein that put the equal sign between energy and matter or energy and mass and said about 80 years ago definitively this is all we got there's energy like light and heat and sound and radiation and then there's physical stuff and there are really two forms of the same thing e equals m c squared <laughs> meaning energy is the equivalent of mass when it moves at the speed of light squared. So even the empirical scientist knows that that's all we've got is energy and mass. Well, a philosopher would say spirit and matter. That's all you've got. And involution is spirit coming into matter. To a religious person, this would be God created the heavens and the earth. All right. 
with the breath. In the beginning there was the word. And on day one God created this and so on. These are stories that are attempts to illustrate the idea that spirit had to express itself. Don't you? I mean, what happens when you don't tell the truth? Um, even if your desire not to is, you know, for the in your judgment, the greater good of all concerned, you're just going to keep your lips sealed and not say your truth. But in your heart, you have to express it to somebody. You've got to express your your outrage or your your sense of what is true. It's hard to contain that. In counseling, we say that which is not expressed ends up being repressed or suppressed or oppressed. And our unhappiness in life, when we are unhappy, physical illness and disease, mental depression, comes from, to some extent, there can be other factors, but from a large extent, it's our refusal to express the truth of what we feel and what we think and what we sense, even subtly, when our feelings are calm and undisturbed and our thoughts are quiet. Something still remains that needs expression. You know, <clears throat> it's like all of those songs of... Uh, from years ago, I did it my way, and uh, you know I gotta be who I am, and uh, uh, even the stories about Pinocchio and the Velveteen Rabbit wanting to be real is about expressing who they really are and the truth of who they really are. But we're afraid that since who we really are is on the surface different from everybody else that a lot of us become more interested in conforming to some conventional mean or pleasing other people. And then we stop expressing the truth of who we really are. And uh, that can only lead us down a, a blind alley. There's no fun down there and uh, no fulfillment and no satisfaction and, and uh, no spiritual evolution. If you're unwilling or unable to express the truth of who you are, then it ends up being suppressed, repressed, oppressed, hidden inside, cached away, and it hurts to do that. It is liberating, on the other hand. It is so freeing to say, I, you know, I may not even be able to explain it, but this is who I am, and this is the way I feel, and you know, if you don't like it or it offends you, well, then I'll do my best to to get along with you. But I need to be who I am. God doesn't make mistakes in this regard. All right? Um, I think our sense of God, we could say, is incapable of making a mistake. So what looks less than whole or unrefined, or we could even say evil, perhaps is not a mistake at all, but just the result of, at least in the sphere of humanity, looking at human beings. We're at the, you know, fourth kingdom here. We're, we have domain over the mineral, the plant, and the animal kingdom. That's a very exalted and, and 
important uh, place of responsibility here to to care for these lower kingdoms. The best way to do that is to be who you really are, to express who you really are. Well, spiritual involution is this pre-Christian, this ancient, ageless concept that spirit involves itself, that there is spiritual involution, that spirit comes into matter as minerals, stars, stuff, rocks, dirt, right, gases, oxygen, nitrogen, the atmosphere, that all the material existence is part of the expression of spirit needing to be. And then out of that evolves what? The plant kingdom. And out of the plant, and what does the plant kingdom need to exist? Minerals. Who's a gardener here? Who, who knows about transplant shock? Who, <laughs> who knows about fertilizer? What are you giving the plant? You're giving it elements from the mineral kingdom that the plant needs to pull upon in order to grow. Out of the plant kingdom, the vegetable kingdom so-called, comes the animal kingdom. And what do the animals need? Well, they need the same minerals, but, you know, animals can't eat dirt and rocks and, and swallow air as if that's enough and water. It's got to have those nutrients, many of them provided by consuming plants. So the third kingdom, the animal kingdom, pulls on the plant kingdom to get the minerals. You see how each successive kingdom is an extension or an expression of the kingdom before it, and it radiates out. This is really a beautiful thing. And again, why can't evolution be taught in a spiritual way? Who's fighting us on this? Who, who, who wants us to believe that the sun revolves around the earth and that the earth is flat, right? <laughs> why can't we love science? Well, of course we can but this is part of the cultural phenomena that we're going through right now. Then, of course, as I mentioned, the human kingdom evolves out of the animal kingdom with dominion, which is not domination. It doesn't mean use it up, abuse it, or the world's going to end anyway, so poison the water, build more nuclear bombs. It doesn't really matter. Who cares about acid rain and global warming? Uh, wait a minute. This is a spiritual life support system. <laughs> this is sacred as the ancient women and men of all societies have said, how could a religious person not care about the life support system and, and, and see it as essential to our dominion, our caretaker status? Dominion is not domination or exploitation, but caring, right? cultivating, that's a nice word for it, the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom and the mineral kingdom, all part of divine expression of a need to be. And that's what you are, and that's why you exist. With fingerprints and DNA, that makes it very clear to you that you're unique. Last week on the uh, CBS Sunday Morning Show, one of the few TV programs I just love, I I DVR it every week. Doreen helps me with this, so I can always get throughout the week my little bit of CBS Sunday morning. And last week they interviewed a guy. This guy runs the physics department at Caltech in Pasadena. That's where Einstein taught. 
I mean, this is a brilliant institution, Caltech in Pasadena, for science and physics. And This guy's the head of Caltech's physics department, <clears throat> and his hobby is taking photographs of snowflakes. Did you guys see this? He takes, <laughs> he says snowflakes are best between 5 and 15 degrees Fahrenheit. So he's out there all bundled up with his frozen glass slides and his little paintbrush and his camera set up in the back of his station wagon. And here's this Caltech scientist, you know, one of the smartest guys in the world, who in his spare time takes pictures of snowflakes. That's his pursuit of beauty. That's his pursuit of majesty. That's what he finds awesome. And the fact that there, at least by appearances, are no two snowflakes alike and no two grains of sand that are exactly alike and no two blades of grass that are the same color green and your DNA and your fingerprints mark you as absolutely unique. And then consider the amount of time and effort that we put into trying to be like other people so we can be liked by other people, tragically in many cases to the expense or at the expense of celebrating our uniqueness and our individuality. You know, I call it the W's, weird, wild, wacky, and wonderful. You are all, and me too, weird, wild, wacky, and wonderful. And until you can stand on the rooftops and just shout it out, you know, this is me. This is what you get. This is who I am. This is what the dictates of my conscience and my consciousness tell me about me. And I've got to express that and develop that every day and every way to be more of whatever I am. This is the process of life discovering itself. You see, we are all children of the Most High, expressing ourselves uniquely. And will we disappoint other people? You better believe it. Right? And <clears throat> will... People who are invested in us, needing to be a certain way, often be disappointed in us that we're not the person they need us to be? Sure. You know that. You've experienced that in your life. But it's like that, <clears throat> that hot dog commercial about uh, being, you know, the higher authority. Um, <laughs> the the rewards for being true to yourself are extraordinary. And again, this is among the most essential wisdom teachings. The, uh, we mentioned Plato a few minutes ago. Plato said or wrote that inscribed over the oracle to Delphi or the oracle to Apollo at Delphi in ancient Greece were the words Nothi Siatan which means know thyself. Imagine being imagine going into church or a temple or a synagogue or an oracle and on the way in you're reminded, hey buddy, this is really about you. 
And then, of course, that wonderful admonition in Hamlet, where the father is instructing the boy before he goes into the big city for the first time, all these rules and tips and, you know, advice. And then he comes to the end and he says, and this above all, and this above all, to thine own self be true. If that sounds selfish, you need to work with the concept. This is not selfish. This is essential to leading a happy, productive, spiritually evolving life. To thine own self be true. And I forget exactly how it goes, but I have to paraphrase. And then as the night follows the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. How could you lie to somebody and be true to yourself? You see, you can't. If you're true to yourself, then you are being true to everybody around you, even if on the surface they protest and they object and they say, no, no, I want you to be a different way. Right? Uh, parents often have this issue with their children. Uh, by golly, no son of mine is going to do this. No daughter of mine is going to do that. Um, or, you know, dad's got the big dream about it being Jones and son, and you're going to join the family business. Well, maybe the boy doesn't want to join the family business, right? Does he belong to the parent? Is it the parent's job to shape and mold the child to the point that we fit their image of who we need to be? Or at some point, do they have to lovingly let loose and say, I want you to be who you are. Because, um, you know, as your parents, we gave you a physical vehicle to inherit. But the breath, the spirit, the life force, the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost, the Chi, the Ki, the Kundalini, the Prana, the Elan Vital, the, the, the energy, the juice, <laughs> whatever you want to call it, that illumines and animates you is as unique as everything else in this universe. And there is the great paradox that the one expresses itself as the many. That unity, the highest high spiritually, expresses itself through diversity. Now that's the involution, spirit coming into matter. Now we have spiritual evolution, the other side of the cycle. You see the other, the Chinese call it the other half of the sky, is spiritual evolution. Now, how does the material being get home again? Jiggity jig. Right? How do we complete the cycle? How do we, having evolved as spirit into material form, how do we evolve back to the one? I love the word atonement. Be like, like so many words, if you break it down into the syllables and play around with atonement, you can see the meaning of the word that may have escaped you, right? So, especially in the Jewish tradition, what is atonement? You know, the days of atonement. Um, what does that mean to atone for your sins? It means to apologize to most people, to say you're sorry, to 
a promise, some authority figure in the church or in the state, I'll never do it again, honest, to do your penance, uh, to get down on bended knee and, and really be contrite, right? To forgive yourself, forgive others, so on and so forth. Well, what if he just broke the word atonement apart, at one meant? Atonement is about coming back to the one, to the whole thing, to the big picture. And again, one of the problems that philosophers have with religion and religious people have with philosophy when they are exposed to it is it's all around the idea of one God, but in religion... God is often seen as very far away and separated. Whether God is a man on a cloud or a white guy or has a beard or lives in a castle is almost beside the point. The bigger question is, is your sense of divinity separated? Or are we an emanation, an extension, if you will, of that which is divine, that invokes, that is invocated, that is involved, spirit into matter, and then evolves its way back home again. So the diverse has to come back to the unitive. The separated has to find its way through community, with unity, back to heaven, to the wholeness, to the oneness of things. Not a separated one, but a whole one that excludes no thing. So the whole idea of being individuated and unique and separated is a relative concept anyway. The whole idea is this big wheel, this great mantella of being involved as a seemingly separated form and then evolving, finding the path finding the way of atonement, of that one to go home again, at which time maybe it's repeated. Maybe there is reincarnation, or maybe there is just one shot at it, and you are incarnated. I don't know. I have no idea. I have my own personal beliefs, but, you know, I see a lot of uh, cycling in nature. To everything there is a season, and all things seem to have an in-breath and an out-breath, and a day and a night, and peaks and valleys, and good times and sad times, and the cyclical nature of things certainly seems apparent, but how far that goes, we don't know. I'm not sure that it matters. Here you are, incarnated. Whether you have been or will be reincarnated doesn't really matter that much. We've still got the overriding concept of this other side of the cycle. How do I evolve? How do I atone? How do I, as a separated individual, honor my separateness? Honor my, well, I don't mean to say honor the separateness. Honor the uniqueness and the individuality the unique perspective. One of each of us is, is divinity from a unique point of view. Doesn't that account for the feeling alienated? Doesn't that account for feeling separated? I mean, we are in separate bodies, constantly reaching out to hold somebody's hand or to get a hug 
or a little bit of agreement sometimes or a little bit of acknowledgement that, gosh, I can understand how you feel, just a hug. I mean, aren't we trying to reconnect? What is love? But the path, the way, the means by which we return, we evolve back to the wholeness of things, whether you see that as going to heaven to live with God forever or just one more cycle around and around on their great wheel is up to you and your conscience and, and the, well, there's three parts to it, of course. There's study, there's meditation, and then there's mindfulness, which is carrying that expanded awareness out into the world and learning every day, little little by little, to get better at remaining awake and not getting caught up in sense and sensation and realizing the truth of who you are. I'm a I'm not a I'm not a human being having these occasional spiritual experiences. You're a spiritual being having a human experience. Read Phenomena of Man by Teilhard de Chardin. There's a Catholic priest who believed in spiritual evolution. He said, you're a spiritual being having a human experience. Don't worry about it. It won't last. Right? You'll move on. So, spiritual evolution, atonement. By the way, that little wordplay also works with the word alone itself. Separate alone, and what you have is all one. You see? I have a concern, of course, as a, uh, a philosopher, that for all the value of fellowship and worship in organized religion, there certainly needs to more, be more emphasis on spiritual evolution, not just you're either saved or you're not. Uh, you got enough brownie points, you've been a good person, you're going to go to heaven, or you're going to burn for all eternity in the lake of fire. Um, I'm not sure those two choices are all we have, right? And spiritual evolution says maybe there's a third way and a fourth option and a fifth possibility. Maybe, maybe we're never um, abandoned. Never, maybe, maybe there is no hell other than the hell we create for ourselves by elevating the separated self above the spiritual self because the spiritual self always wants to get along it always wants to love it always wants to cuddle it always wants a hug it always wants to share you know and that's the difference between fear and love fear drives us farther and farther apart even in your immediate intimate relationships you scare each other you get stressed out you have an argument you can feel the repulsion Right? And I mean like electromagnetic repulsion, like the bar magnet, you know, the two similar ends of two bar magnets. You put the like ends together, north against north, they repel each other. That's magnetic. That's what fear does. It repels us. What does love do? It magnetically attracts us. It pulls us together. So if that which is divine and spiritually true and good and beautiful the Godhead, the Absolute, the Supreme, whatever, is love, then it's pulling us up. Provided we align ourselves magnetically 
we acknowledge and honor the desire within us, not only emotionally, but even above that, right? When the thoughts are quiet and the emotional heart is calm, there is a feeling that remains that is really sweet and beautiful, and it will lift you up. Maybe this is what is meant by being uplifted, by redemption. Maybe this is water to wine, you see. Maybe this is lead to gold. Maybe it's putting our hearts on love that like attracts like in the spiritual. Not to get off track, but if the physical is a reflection of the spiritual, an emanation, an extension, or a reflection, the polarities would be reversed, like trying to read a newspaper in the mirror, right? And so in electromagnetism, like would repel like. The two north ends of the bar magnets would repel each other, and opposites attract. But in the spiritual, like attracts like, so love attracts love. And fear, and all of its first cousins, anger and hatred and enmity, repel. You can feel it in your body. You can even learn to reverse the polarity when you're feeling repelled by somebody you don't like or even repelled by somebody you love as much as you could imagine loving anybody. What do we do to reverse those polarities so that we're attracted instead of magnetically repelled? We shift from fear to love from what you don't know to what you do know. From wanting to be that separated ego to acknowledging that there's more to you than that separated ego. You are that, but it's not you're that or a soul. You are an ego and a soul. Now, who do you want running the show? Do you want to be always the ego aspiring to know itself spiritually? Or could we be that love? Could we be the soul that rescues the ego, that redeems it, that that appropriates it and uplifts it? And I say, yeah, that's essential to spiritual evolution. In esoteric traditions, there are even stages of this development, uh, so-called third initiation, where you actually switch your identity from the ego or the separated being wanting to know heaven and God to the soul that then appropriates the personality or the ego accounts for it allows for it but like a big brother or or a father figure a parenting figure a spiritual guide says now now relax hold on let's think about this Take a breath. Okay, you know what's the right thing to do, right? And you get what has been known in philosophy as the spiritual patrol. But uh, I'm sorry, Sp- the spiritual marriage or betrothal. Am I saying that right? Betrothal, the spiritual marriage or the alchemical wedding. And there are said to be two when the ego or the persona, the separated self, marries the higher self, the solar aspect, the soul that is within you, that is the essence of who you are, right? that you have been extended from. 
That's the first spiritual betrothal. And the second would be at the end of the whole game where even the soul knows the Godhead and, uh, and comes together in, in that sense that we could barely imagine. So then what is the path or what is the way? If we now have a sense of this great wheel or this great cycle of spiritual involution, spirit coming into matter, and then the consciousness of the matter, the awareness of the matter, of the material being, evolving back toward the oneness of things, okay, back to heaven, so to speak, going back to where you came from, then what's the path? What is the via? What is the way? And simply said, I can imagine that many of you are answering me already, the path is love in all of its variations. You could say peace is the way. Peace as in inner peace. Love is the way. Happiness is the way. Joy is the way. All right. Kindness is the way. Forgiveness is the way. What does that mean? It means... These are not destinations. Did you really think, did somebody tell you along the way that success was the way to happiness? No. Happiness is the way to success. You see, success at what? Well, even if only success at being happy. When you take love and happiness and peace and make them destinations, you have no way. All right? What did Christ say? I am the way and the light. What does that mean? Follow me. Be like me. Do it this way. All right? I don't think that means you've got to join this church in order to get to heaven because... You know the joke about heaven being compartmentalized. All the Catholics are over here, and and all the Protestants are over here, and then the the gay Protestants are over here, and I don't know where they put the gay Catholics, and then the uh, you know where are we going to put the Muslims up here? They have a heaven, and how about all these Buddhists? And uh, I mean, it's just silly to be exclusive in religion. It's just absurd to say. You have to believe exactly what I believe, exactly the way the church or the temple or the mosque or my particular religion teaches, or else you don't get to be in heaven. It's likely you're already there. You know, people say to me, where do you go when you die? I say, you don't go anywhere. They say, what do you mean? I said, well, if you go to a movie theater, when the movie's over, where did it go? They said, well, it didn't go anyplace. It's still behind me in the projector. Well, what happened? Well, it ended. They turned off the light bulb that was projecting it onto the screen. But it didn't go anyplace. The idea that your soul is already in heaven and that you are an extension or an emanation of the soul is an ancient concept worthy of consideration. Not for me to tell you what to believe. But that's certainly a consideration. And so to go to heaven 
is to expand your awareness that where is the kingdom? It's inside you. The kingdom is within. But wouldn't it mean that the master is within? Wouldn't it mean that the way is within you? What kind of game would this be if this promise were held out, the spiritual evolution? But no way is shown. That's what prophets do. They come to show you the way, which is not follow this particular guy, but follow his teachings. Imitate this behavior. Hang out with poor. You want to be Christ-like? Go hang out with poor people. Not rich people at the country club. Minister to the poor. Care about the poor. Don't get sucked into some political debate about taxation and Obama's a socialist. I guess that would make Christ a communist, right? Why are you to minister to the poor? Why will the meek inherit the earth? Why are the peacemakers blessed? Okay. Because this is the way. In the peace movement, in the anti-war movement, we used to say, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And that's true. Inner peace, not just the absence of war and violence and conflict, but ah, a calm and quiet conscience and countenance. Ah, I'm satisfied with who I am. I like who I am. It keeps unfolding. It keeps developing. But I will honor that and be true to that. For it is far more true and good and beautiful than trying to be what other people want me to be or what they need me to be or what they insist I'm going to have to be. Right? You're not broken. You're not defective. You have a GPS in your heart. You've got the the maps and the compass are in your soul, so to speak. It's with you now. You're not lost. You know the right thing to do. <laughs> if you just get quiet, the way will be revealed to you. It always is. It's there. You, you're never abandoned in spite of appearances and, and emotional feelings of abandonment and alienation and separation and, and being lost in the world. Go into the heart, the higher heart, not the emotional heart. That's too too much turmoil there. But when you still the body and quiet the mind and the heart becomes calm, something remains. And it is the higher heart, it is the soul, it is a quality of love, capital L, love, that will lead you spiritual evolution along the path that brings you back to your source. Now, everybody's doing this. It's just, could you do it a little more elegantly? That, I mean, that's all we're talking about. Everybody, I, everybody's growing. Everybody's unfolding. Some do it very awkwardly and scratch and crawl and scrape and claw their way along. But um, everybody's doing it. The idea is, can we do it a little more elegantly? trying to find my page here. I've got so many windows open on my computer. Let me find the right page. So, having said that, and coming up to the top of the hour here, I'd like you to, again, if you're listening live on the web, use the, uh, well, right in front of you is a little screen.
screen, down at the bottom of the screen is what I'm trying to say, a place where you can put your question or your comment, uh, type in your name, your first name, if not your full name, and the city where you are. And uh, questions, comments, just a hi, hello, and we'll address a few of those, and then we'll do a nice little guided imagery or meditation for you and let you go before uh, before the bottom of the hour. So uh, we're hearing from, uh, let's see, first of all, in Montreal, Shalad is with us today, Charlotte or Shalad in Montreal, and she says, hello, Michael, I'm waiting impatiently for today's Mystery School class. See, she put this in before the class even started. You can do that. She said, is the best of you hidden within, and if so, where is it? And if growth is what life is all about, then how can we do it better? She says, at times... I did find myself in paradise, but sometimes I'm in hell, like right now. And that's the time that I feel that my spiritual growth is stifled, it's stagnating, it's as if I'm suffocating. And by the way, she says, I love your YouTube video. Thank you, Shalom. You can see our YouTube video on our website at FocusedPassion.com, just Come on in. You'll see it right there. Between the headshot of me and Steve, there's a link. It says, watch our cool video, focusedpassion.com. Or you can go to YouTube. Just type in youtube.com slash videos, and you'll see our cool video. It's about four and a half, uh, almost five minutes long, about finding yourself in paradise, what that means. Well, Charlotte, let me answer that. Uh, I'll try and answer this for you here. Is the best of you hidden within? Yes. Where is it? The best of you, this is so ironic, I know, and it's so difficult to hear, but it's true. The the best of you, the parts you haven't discovered, um, the really glorious, glorious and magnificent spiritual essence of who you are is hidden where you've been afraid to look. It's behind your fear. And the funny thing is, for all of our aspiration to the light, we have to look at what scares us. Um, We have to look at what Joseph Conrad called the heart of darkness. We have to end our denial. And like Christ walking on water, be absolutely unafraid. It's such a beautiful allegory. It's only in two of the Gospels, and it's so important you'd think it'd be in all four, but somehow got lost along the way, I guess. People presumed the apostles in the boat were frightened because of the storm. And Christ is walking over the water saying, hey, chill out, what are you worried about? Why are you guys always afraid of stuff? Right? Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe the storm was a result of their fear. Notice how often the apostles fall asleep. (laughs) Maybe it's not that they're tired. Maybe they're hypnotized. Maybe they're in a daze like most of us most of the time. We spend our days in a daze, asleep, and afraid of what we don't know. Right? And what does it mean to walk on water? It means to be supported by your emotions, the emotional nature. When you calm the emotions, you quiet the waters, they support you. And if you can't walk on water, I know I can't, But I can float, and how do you do that? How do you float on your back in water? 
take a breath, and then you let go of muscular tension and float right up to the top. And what happens when you start to sink in the water? Well, it's the result of anxiety and fear, confusion and ignorance, negativity, being carried in your body as muscular tension, and glug, 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 down you go. So if you want to learn to float in water, it's the same thing as learning to walk on water. You've got to be fearless. All right? Face your fear. I know it's ironic, but that's what you have to do. Look at what you've written. You know, this is in Plato's Allegory in the Cave also, where the people that were imprisoned in the cave were afraid of the shadows that were exaggerated and distorted, but they thought that was reality, and they had very good reason to fear those shadows. And then in Plato's story, they get loose, and they go running outside into the full light of day. Oh, and everything is so bright and so colorful, and they figure this has got to be a nightmare. This has got to be a dream. I can't face it. It's way too terrifying. So they run back in the cage and offer their wrists and say, tie me up again and put me in front of those scary shadows. But the shadows are distorted and exaggerated. Fear is distorted and exaggerated as a result of not wanting to deal with it or not wanting to look at it. And it's only when you look at fear as what you don't know. Look at it so that you can know it, that you redeem the fear into love that you save your confusion and ignorance into something that you begin to understand. So look at beauty, look at goodness, look at love and truth all you want. But you're also going to have to look at what you're afraid of. Anything that hurts emotionally is supported by fear, which ultimately is a symptom of what you don't know about you okay so that's where it is it's in your heart it's in your heartache and that's where you look and if growth is what life is all about she says how can we do it better well by learning from your mistakes by dedicating yourself to it instead of trying to avoid it what do we use TV for mostly avoiding what do we read novels for? To know more about life? Yeah, in some cases, but often to escape. What do we use alcohol and drugs for? In most cases, there are such things as mind-expanding drugs, but most of those, well, really all of those are illegal. The legal drugs <laughs> make you really stupid, right? But we're self-medicating because we don't want to look at the fear. We're afraid to look at the heartache little faith, right? Don't have a whole lot of faith if we're afraid to look at the heartache. So, when we say finding yourself in paradise, paradise is within. It's the kingdom within. And that's where the master is. Within. Not out there. Within. But you've got to practice. You've got to still the body and quiet the mind and calm the heart turning away from the distortions and the illusion of physical sense and sensation, that separated existence, even if only for ten minutes a day, to get a sense 
of the ineffable, of who you really are and what you're really for. And I can't tell you those details. And I would say beware of anybody who says they can. The Master is within. The Christ is inside of you, the Christos. The Buddha nature is inside of you. The divine is in your heart, hidden behind what you don't know, and that's what fear is. So, are these scary times? Yeah. What are we going to do? Face it. Breathe. Exhale right into whatever scares you the most. Is it running out of money? Is it physical illness? Is it people who love you running away? Right? What, what, what could it be? Are permutations and combinations of all of that? That's what that's what setting aside one day, the so-called seventh day, is about. Well, how about just ten minutes every day if you're too busy? Ten minutes every day devoted. What a radical idea. Devoted to knowing yourself better by looking at what you don't know. How do you find it? It's all the stuff that scares us. All the stuff we don't want to look at. It is a discipline. And to do it, you have to become, in a sense, a disciple of self-initiated spiritual evolution. Read all the books. Come to webinars and seminars and classes like this. You've got to study, number one. Diverse and antagonistic literature. You've got to study all the holy books from Christianity. Well, not all of them, but as many as you can. Study the Jewish books. The Kabbalah, the Zohar, the Book of Splendors. Read the Koran. My God, if you haven't looked at the Koran, what are you thinking? <laughs> right? There are a billion Muslims in the world, hundreds and hundreds and millions of people. W- wouldn't you think that looking at that book and putting it on the shelf next to the Bible would be a good idea? I think so. Read the sutras. Um study the Bhagavad Gita care about the philosophies of humanists and non-religious people that aspired to being the best that they could be and then you find your own path, your own way pulling on all the beautiful truth that can be found here and there and everywhere and the, the, the problem is most people just don't want to do the work if you're on this webinar, if you're listening to this You've already raised yourself above the masses in that regard. It's obvious to me you're willing to do the work. I hope that helps, Charlotte. And thanks again for being here. Let's see. Uh, Albert Garcia is with us from Rosemead. And he says just wants to plug in and say hello. Well, hello, Albert. Nice to hear from you. Up in Apple Valley, in the high desert above Los Angeles, Don says, Hi, Michael. Says, I heard a quote, maybe from you, not sure, that we are what God is doing now. And one more, a line from one of Tom Waits' songs, that ain't the devil, that's just God when he's drunk. Ola to all, <laughs> and as always, thanks so much for this class. Well, I'm not going to, I don't have the time to talk about the evil side, the dark side of divinity. Uh, and it's too esoteric for most people, and it's way scary. Uh, the idea that 
that evil is part of God's plan, uh, temptation, uh, bad things, illness and disease is a, a concept I'm glad you're willing to face because it has to be looked at at some point. And <clears throat> I'm sure I'll do a, a class or a webinar along these lines at some point. And the idea that uh, evil has to exist just like there has to be a night. You know, where does the sun go? I have a friend who wrote a book called The Sun at Midnight. Where is the sun at midnight? When you feel abandoned and alienated and dominated by evil circumstances, you know, where is the divinity now? Uh, what's that Edward G. Robinson line? Where is your Moses now? You know, <laughs> well, it's still there. It's just you're turned away from it, right? The earth rotated and and uh, it's nighttime. So there is evil, and there is darkness, and there is badness, and there is temptation. And that's part of the whole plan, is your job is not to avoid it so much as to redeem it, to save it, to take what's good out of it. You know, the, I love the allegory, I repeat it a lot, but the old alchemical allegory about burning off the dross, the adversity or evil, is like how how do you deal with that? Well, the alchemists would take gold ore, put it in the athanor, the oven, crank up the heat, and then everything that was dross or impurity would burn away and reveal or leave as you know as a residue that which is pure, the gold. And the idea that was that our existence here is a way that we can burn off the impurities. Uh, by experiencing, by moving into them and through them, you know. Uh, you have to know it before you can save it. Is again, an allegory or a metaphor that needs some work. In Cerritos this morning, <coughs> excuse me, Kareem is with us again this week. Hello, Kareem, nice to hear from you. He says, uh, Michael, I'm trying to coerce other people to be like you, some kind of spiritual narcissism. Thanks for the show, and I like the Family Learning Hour program on focused passion. Peace, Kareem. That's a question. I didn't read that right. He says, Michael, is trying to coerce other people to be like you, he doesn't mean me, he means him. If I did that, if I wanted other people to be like me, or if Kareem wants other people to be like him, um, is that some kind of spiritual narcissism? I don't know. Spiritual narcissism is a, I'll have to think about that. The 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 power in this sentence, in this question, is the word coerce. And I would say any attempt to coerce somebody, given the denotations of that word, would have to be negative because it carries the denotation or the connotation of a trick or a game or a scam or pressuring somebody, right? So um, that may not be your intention, but I suspect it is. It's more like um, enticing, right, seducing in a, in a positive way. We don't want to co coerce and manipulate. We just want to share. Um, you know, you, you're enjoying this big apple pie, and it's way more than you can eat, and somebody comes by and, what could be more natural than to say, hey, you want a piece of this apple pie? Let me share that with you. 
Um, but if they say, I hate apple pie, I, you know, I've just never liked apple pie. I just, that's not my thing. You don't take it personally as if they've rejected your apple pie. You see what I'm saying? Um, so you offer, hey, here's a spiritual insight. Hey, here's something I learned from Christianity. Here's something I learned from a Jewish rabbi. Hey, you know what I read in the Koran the other day? And you know what Buddha said about that? And Patanjali in the, uh, in the old uh, Yoga Sutras used to say, and you offer it, and maybe that seed sprouts and takes root, and maybe it doesn't. You know the allegory, some seed falls on the rocks, not so fertile ground. So spread a lot of seeds. But then I, I guess it's about knowing what you want and sharing it with other people, but then letting go. You know, it's important to have goals and know what you want, but also be flexible in allowing the outcome to arrive in its own way. Um, Pythagoras said 2,500 years ago, never pray for what you want. You might get it, right? How about just asking for, let God determine what you need instead of being so willful about, I want this and I want that. Well, how do you know what's in your best interest? There's a balance here. I'm not saying that, on the other hand, you abandon free will and drop your goals and your dreams and just let fate have its way with you. How about a nice balance or a blend of being willful, of setting goals and having dreams and wanting to share that with other people? But then letting go at the same time. You know, keep the dog on a leash, but make it a nice long leash. Let him run a little bit. And I think that's what we have to do in life, is find a balance between heaven and earth, you know, uh, between God and man, between spirit and matter. That's the soul. And that's where we're supposed to know what we want and aspire to better things. But at the same time, leave room for the hand of providence, for the fates to work. And then when you get what you want, don't be surprised if what you needed was somehow blended inside what you wanted. And maybe what you needed is wonderful and you didn't know you needed it. And maybe what you need is some adversity and you didn't know you needed that. Don't resist it. Harvest what you can from it. And walk that middle way. Find that balance. The way that is love. The way that is peace. The way that is joy and happiness and harmony. The light. The way in the light. Um, is not a goal or a result. It seems like it sometimes because you put one step in front of the other. But each step is not a goal might look that way. Don't be confused about your ultimate destination. Don't even be concerned about it. Just move toward goodness and truth and light and love. But keep in mind, love is not only the outcome. Primarily, it is the way. Peace is not a goal so much. I mean, it is in a sense. But moreover, more importantly, it is the means or the way. In Irvine, Robert says, uh, for those who are going through their own dark night of the soul, is, that's a beautiful book by St. John of the Cross, 
is finding the love within what ultimately leads us out. As I understand the dark night, it's a feeling of being alone and separated. Your thoughts. Um, the dark night is a number of things. I think as St. John talked about it, it's not only a period in your life or a series of times in your life where everything seems to go south and turn against you and like Job challenge your faith but it may be an entire lifetime um, and often the way St. John wrote about it is something that happens to you whether it's an entire life in a series of lives or a period within a given life, dark night of the soul, St. John suggested, was some, something that often happened to you as a kind of a trial or a test just before a major breakthrough to enlightenment. Hold on a sec. Let me have a sip of this. And so that could be encouraging and say, well, and I'm going through a really difficult time right now, so maybe that means on the other side there's something really wonderful there. That's what he was suggesting in that. So let's say you're saying dark nights of the soul is finding the love within what ultimately leads us out. I don't know about out, and I don't want to nitpick your words. I would say through, right? The dark night... Again, you have to follow love, but you have to follow fear to find your love. Love is the absence of the fear. It is a paradox. That truth is found in paradox is why very few people are interested in philosophy. It's too complicated for them. They don't have time. They, many people just don't have the willingness to face the paradox. The, the, the great paradox we talked about earlier, that God is one, a whole thing, inclusive, that excludes nothing, not even evil. Very challenging for people. They, they, in religion, one God is, maybe there's, he's singular, but it's that one out there, very separated. Okay. And the paradox that the one, as the universe, the whole thing, the one thing, would then manifest in all these not only separate but diverse and unique forms. Why would it do that? And then spiritual evolution, the idea that all these diverse and unique forms have to find their way home again, like the prodigal son, back to the one. How are we going to do that? And why? And then if you have to do it all over again, what would be the point? Well, you know, maybe it's as easy as the need for that which is most high to express itself. And we are expressions, unique expressions. But to get it on, to accelerate that growth, we need to be aware of that and know that fear and heartache and what hurts us emotionally is what needs to be faced. It's what needs the redeeming. Right? And uh, I think that's the importance of looking at fear not as sin, oh, you're a bad person, don't do that, but as you're confused, this is what you don't know about yourself, therefore face it so as to better understand your unique self. That's a job you can't delegate. If you don't know you, who's going to do it, right? That's your job, to understand yourself. 
and to save what's good and to leave behind the rest. Salvation. Again, or water to wine. What is the allegory of water to wine? Or the, uh, the, uh, ver- the, um, the prostitute to the virgin. Um, seems sort of backwards, but there you go. Time is flying again. I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for accounting for daylight savings time, most of you. We're here at 1 o'clock every Sunday, West Coast time, 4 o'clock in the East, whether it's daylight time or savings time. We stay the same out here in Hawaii, so we'll, we'll adjust so that we're always on at the same time, whether it's daylight time or savings time, 1 o'clock in the West Coast, 4 o'clock in the East. And let's do a little guided meditation here, just a quick little visualization exercise to help install this. The mind likes pictures. The subconscious loves imagery, even more than words. So let's do a little visualization, and then just for four minutes or so, and then I'll let you guys go. So if this is a good time for you, and you're all comfortable, prop up the pillows and sit nice and straight and breathe. Open up that rib cage, put your shoulders back. Ah. Maybe do that a second or a third time. Nice, slow, deep breaths. And stand open and receptive as if you were a, a vessel, an urn, a chalice, a cup. Stand open and receptive as you continue to relax to drop muscular tension, to create and sense a letting go feeling as if you have ultimately nothing to fear. And stand in your mind's eye, open and receptive, however it occurs to you. I like to think of a downward precipitation like a gentle rainfall coming down into the top of your head. And filling you as you sit upon the earth. Imagine, you could imagine sitting where you're actually sitting in your favorite chair or a sofa or a pillow. Or with your eyes closed now, imagine in a wilderness place, in a beautiful sunny meadow or a cool shady forested place, sitting on the earth, grounded to the earth, connected and plugged in rooted into the material world with your physical body, but also open and receptive to this downward precipitation. Let it in. Let it come in. And be the soul and the heart and the center of that equation. Think of spiritual energy, the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, the Alain Vital, the Chi, the Ki, the the kundalini, the prana, whatever you want to call it, the energy in Einstein's equation of energy equals mass. As if it were gently raining down upon you, moving through you, filling you, seeking the earth, just like lightning. Isn't that energy, seeking the earth? Doesn't all electricity and energy want to be grounded? Be the conductor, you see. In this way, you are the middle way. You can be the way and the light for more awareness, 
the light of enlightenment of, oh, I see. Wait a minute. This was here all along. This understanding of what I'm supposed to do in this situation has been here all along. But now that I relax, I can see it. I can see it now. Oh, just like turning the light on in the attic. You knew it was up here, but now you can see it. And take your time. Doing nothing but sitting open. And initially your thoughts will chatter at you. You don't need to quiet that to meditate. You relax and meditate to quiet the mind. All those ideas will fall away. As you practice sitting peacefully. And all of the emotional turmoil. What about this? What about that? What about... Yeah, but... Yeah, but... Yeah. Take another breath. Just let it fall away. I promise something will remain. Love remains. Light remains. It allows you to see and understand. And I'd like you to imagine, however it occurs to you, an old-fashioned spiral staircase. In which you, know, you have to go around. It's by going around and around that you move up. The Jacob's Ladder, the stairway to heaven, if you will, is actually spiralic. And you have to go around and around and around the spiral staircase, just like walking around the mountain, around and around to get to the top. See if you can feel yourself effortlessly moving up as a, as a result of facing your fear, looking at what hurts and confuses you as a representation of what you don't know about yourself so as to better know yourself and understand your uniqueness and your individuality and elevate that so much more important than being like other people to be liked by other people. The next time you find yourself asking self, why am I going through this again? You answer as higher self speaking to lower self. As the spiritual soul of the essence of who you are, speaking to the frightened, separated ego. Yeah, you are. We are going through it again, but this time on a higher turn of the spiral. Yeah, we have to go through this again, but it's a little more refined this time. You are bringing with you a few lessons that you've learned along the way. And it won't be so hard this time, because it's on a higher turn on the spiral. And as you go round and round and gently upward, moving up, spiritually evolving back home again, those big cycles get a little smaller. There's a tapering. The spiral gets less dramatic fewer extremes, 
the pendulum doesn't swing quite so far and wide anymore. That's all a spiral is, a back-and-forth pendulum in 3D, going back and forth, but around and around. And as it settles down, it's still going back and forth, but not so dramatically. And you move it up higher toward the very top of the pendulum, the very top of the spiral staircase, a single point, a singularity, fixed, occupying no space, infinite, occupying no time, eternal, at the very top. That's a ways from here. You're in form. You're wearing an earth suit. You're in this planet in form. So find the middle between this ultimate destination and the worst you've ever been as a terrified, frightened, separated, alienated being. Stand in the middle. Use your study. Use this kind of contemplation and bring it back mindfully to the waking state that every day in every way you can be a little bit better in knowing the truth of who you are and how to accelerate your growth better and better every day in every way. Tell yourself that in a moment when I ask you to open your eyes wide awake and alert feeling rested and refreshed that you can carry with you gently this expanded awareness this more accurate view of your position between spirit and matter between the heaven and earth you don't have a soul you are a soul you are the conduit, the, the medium, the conductor that allows spirit to come into matter, but at the same time unfolds the consciousness, the awareness of that material being back to the top again, home again, home again. Now, in a moment, I will ask you to do that, to open your eyes wide awake. Take your time. And again, just repeat to yourself, I'm going to hold this expanded view, this greater sense of who I am gently as I come into the waking state and see how long, how far into this day can I go before I forget and become only my thoughts and feelings. How long can I remain mindful before I become mindless, a victim of my thoughts and feelings? Watch it. Be the watcher. Be the witness. As you take a deep breath now, and as you exhale, open your eyes now. Wide awake and alert, feeling rested and refreshed with a full memory of what we just did so that you can take five minutes or ten minutes any time during the day to reorient yourself. You're not God. 
but you're also not a separated victim or isolated effect. You know, we all know what it feels like to think that we're insignificant and unimportant. But you're unique. How insignificant could you be if there's only one of you? Not only are you important, you're absolutely essential to the whole process of facing your fear as simply a symptom of what you haven't yet come to understand about yourself. And you be the light and you be the way that illumines that darkness so that, oh, I see where I am on this. And you may have to do that every day. See, Maybe even a couple of times a day, maybe even three times a day for three minutes. You reorient yourself and say, I am that I am. Not, not this I am so much, separated, lonely, fearful. I am that I am, above form, in form, but above form and free of form. I am more than this. I am love. I am peace. I am kindness. I am forgiveness. I am compassion. And I'm starting to get it. <laughs> A little more every day. I'm starting to get it. In difficult, challenging situations, I'm beginning to remember it. I went over a little. My apologies. I'll back out of here and let you go. Thank you so much for being with us. Really, really appreciate it. Share these with the little tool or gadget on our website that allows you to forward these programs to your friends, theagelesswisdom.com. And if you like these programs and want to contribute just 99 cents a week to our larger mission, we've got another program called Finding Yourself in Paradise that Steve Snyder and I do together at Focused Passion. Dot com. It's not a lot we ask, 99 cents a week. And, you know, if even that were an issue, send me, send me an email. I'll give you that free, too. But I want you to have an opportunity to be a contributor financially, mentally and emotionally, and spiritually as well. Share what you care about, not just our programs, but anything you find on the Internet that has spiritual and psychological and educational value to other people, to find the harmony, to find the love, stick it in an email. Post it on your social networking blog. Twitter it to your friends. And help us change the world by sharing what you care about. Forward these programs to your friends. Be a contributor at FocusedPassion.com for just 99 cents a week. And would really mean a lot, and I dare say it'll change who you are, even if you don't listen to the programs, but if you listen and then share them with your friends, I think you're going to be amazed at the growth, and there's nothing you got to join, and there's nothing you have to believe, and there's nothing you have to do except be unafraid, relax, breathe, and be true to yourself. You're not broken or defective. You have a conscience. There is a way within. There's a whole kingdom within. And the master is within. Okay, you can find that. You know how it feels. Again, thanks for being with us and join us next week. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner from Maui, Hawaii. Aloha.